Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Coming up on this edition, it's evangelist, author, and filmmaker Ray Comfort, who has compiled a new devotional book based on the book of Proverbs. Then it's Bob Walachewski of the Plugged In Department of Focus on the Family, relating information about a film coming into theaters this week, depicting the life of Charles Molly, a wealthy Kenyan man who followed God's direction, left his company, and devoted himself to ministering to orphans. Plus, you'll be hearing about the fascinating story of Jamel McGee, falsely accused of a crime and sent to prison, and Andrew Collins, the policeman who framed him. After each man served in prison, they came together and learned how to move forward, motivated by their common faith in Christ. And on this edition of The Intersection, it's author and blogger September McCarthy, who spoke with me about some of the struggles of motherhood and the value of a mother, topics about which she writes in a recent book release. Then it's Jeremy Dice of First Liberty Institute with some comments about the latest edition of the organization's annual report, highlighting numerous instances of religious hostility in the U.S. Finally, you'll hear from Wesley J. Smith of the Discovery Institute with some challenging thoughts centered around the case of a young lady from California and the debate about whether or not she should be declared legally dead, especially since she has shown responsiveness. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Ray Comfort is someone who, through his video productions and writings, has challenged believers in their approach to evangelism and has caused non-believers to rethink their positions on important issues. Ray has put together a collection of devotions based on the Proverbs. It's called Think on These Things, Wisdom for Life from Proverbs, 365 Daily Devotions. Sharing principles of God's wisdom contained in His Word, this is Ray Comfort. I'm a clock. I'm a dumbo. I'm always doing stupid things. And God says, if you want wisdom, ask me and I'll give it to you. And the book of Proverbs is packed full of wisdom to save us pain. And uh, I know that I've saved myself getting beaten up because of uh, the wisdom of Proverbs. Uh, for instance, I was right, uh, driving in my car a number of years ago. I pulled into a parking, uh, parking space and I accidentally cut off a van behind me. And the guy was angry. When he parked his van, I could see how angrily he parked it. He got out, big guy walked across to my car, and he was mad. I wound down the window. He said, that was a very stupid thing to do. I said, I know it was. I'm very sorry. Please forgive me. And he said, oh, have a nice weekend. And that was a soft answer, turns away wrath. If I'd taken the natural position the world says to take and said, you're traveling too close, fathead, he would have punched my nose in. And so the book of Proverbs tells us how to save ourselves pain in marriage, how to save ourselves in pain in sexual and the whole sexual issue, and there's so many issues, like don't maybe greet your neighbor loudly in the morning, it's going to be counted a curse to you. Well, I'm the sort of person that jumps out of bed and says, yippee, I'm alive, and that can drive people crazy. Or, uh, you know, don't judge a matter until you've heard both sides. Or if you see two people arguing uh, on the street, don't try and pull them apart to be a peacemaker as a Christian. The Bible says if you do that, you're like a man who grabs a dog or an angry dog by both of its ears. You're going to get bitten. And so we've put these 365 proverbs together in one book, and it's a beautiful little book. When uh, Broad Street Publishing sent me graphics of the cover, I was so disillusioned. I thought, this is horrible. I thought it was going to be a hardcover. And when I got it in my hand, and it was like a little leather-bound Bible, it just blew me away. They've done such a wonderful job. It's got the quality you give to a president, and so or a king or a queen. So uh, I'm delighted with what they've done. And, and, and Bob, you know, 
when you read the Word, it's so important to read it in a meditative way. That is, chew over it. Sometimes we attack the Word of God like my dog eats its food. You know, it chomps it down in about five seconds, and I say, are you crazy or something? Have you got taste buds in your stomach? Chew it over. And sometimes we take the Word of God and read 10 chapters a day and feel good about it when we should be meditating on it. And so that's what we've done with this book. We've broken it up into 365 daily readings. You obviously want people to be able to digest properly and approach the Scriptures properly. So what do you see as the best ways for believers to actually approach the Proverbs? Well, you know, I've been reading the Bible every day without fail uh, since 1972. That's 44, 45 years. And I thought every Christian did that until about 35 years ago. I began asking churches, hands up if you read the Bible every day without fail, which is usually about 5%. And I was horrified and uh, because Proverbs, sorry, Psalm 1 says, if you meditate on the law of God both day and night, You'll be as a tree planted by rivers of water. You bring forth food and seeds, and your leaf won't wither. And whatever you do will prosper. That's your marriage, your vocation, your evangelistic endeavors. If you fulfill the requirements of Psalm 1 and just meditate on the law of God both day and night. Job said, I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And we wouldn't go for two or three days without feeding our stomachs. And what we've got to do is put our Bible before our belly and say, no Bible, no breakfast, no read, no feed. And... That meditative process is the way we should eat food. You don't, you know, chomp down your, your food in, in five seconds like a dog. You chew it over, and so that it becomes absorbed into your body uh, to energize you throughout that day. And so I would encourage people to read the book of Proverbs and chew it over, think about it, and that's what we've done with these, with these devotions, and then let it energize you during that day and let it, let it stay within your mind and think it over. And that's why we've called this think on these things. Ray Comfort, the founder and CEO of Living Waters, here on the Intersection Podcast. He's also co-host of The Way of the Master. You can learn more by going to livingwaters.com. Next up, it's Bob Walachewski, director of the plugged-in department of Focus on the Family. He shared with me about the movie Mully to be presented in association with Focus in theaters October 3rd through 5th. He discussed the man who is the subject of the documentary and his commitment to orphans, as well as some of the messages of the film. From that conversation, this is Bob Walachewski. Eventually, in a poor, poor country like Kenya, he became a millionaire, uh, living the big life. Uh, you know, I had a Mercedes, had a nice home, had eight kids, had everything you wanted. And you've already alluded to it, Bob. One day he was out four hours in his Mercedes and was on a drive. And he felt like God talked to him and said, your new business is going to be helping orphans just like yourself. I want you to sell everything, and I want you to go full-time into taking care of orphan kids. And uh, he got home that night. He gathered his kids or was around the dinner table. He dropped that bombshell on the family. Um, now, by the way, I don't <laughs> recommend necessarily if we feel – guys, if you feel like you hear from the Lord, you just go home and just drop that bombshell. Might be, you might want to run it by your wife first. He didn't, and I asked Charles about that personally. He, he, he now realizes that maybe he should have, uh, but she's come fully on board, and so have the kids. Not, the kids didn't at first, they, or not all of them. Uh, some of them were pretty disappointed. 
and uh, one thing led to another, and uh, he's now involved. He's he's worked and helped rescue 13,000 orphans to date, disciple train, rescue, rehabilitate, um, and, uh, and, and they're now on five campuses. And it's a pretty exciting documentary to tell all this a lot better than I just explained it. <laughs> I had a chance to meet him back in May and interviewed him. And one of the questions, and, and the video of this will be posted at, uh, at uh, PluggedIn.com. On, we have a blog section, as many of our listeners know. And in that blog section, not only do we write things, but we actually do video blogs and just uh, let video speak. And one of those is my interview with with, with Charles Mully. And I asked, one of the questions I had for him was along the lines of what you just asked, Bob, which is, um, what's the best way to minister and help marginalized people, marginalized kids and orphans especially? Is it to sell everything and try to donate it? Or is it to run a successful business and maybe give 20% of your profits um, and continue to work in your business so that you can do 20% forever and ever and ever and ever and uh, and keep this thing going. And uh, and I like the way Dr. Mully said it. It was basically, it was not a, an either-or answer, and I, that's what I figured he would say. Um, he basically said for him, he felt God said for him, it was to sell everything and invest it all and then live by faith for the supply of the food and the clothing and the educational needs of, of the kids that he was going to help. But he also realizes that uh, he's supported uh, to this very day by people who would do it a differently. They would give the profits or they would give um, what the Lord has, has given them. So it's um, it, it's an interesting way of, of helping the kids. But to answer more specifically uh, what he what he does, you can see him in the film – and he's done this many, many, many times. Um, they, they estimate uh, that there are 2.4 million orphans in the country of Kenya alone, and they've helped 13,000. Now, that's just a drop in the bucket, but praise God, it's also 13,000 that are different. Many of them have gone on to be doctors, lawyers, teachers. Um, and it really rescued him. But you can see him in the movie um, it, he, he, going out at night, the camera following him, and, uh, and finding a, a kid sleeping in a, in a bag, basically a gunny sack. And, uh, and, and, and he'll just he'll say, you know, I'd like to help you out. I'd like to take you home with me, and, and, and we're going to take care of you. And, uh, and these kids, uh, you know, don't have a dad, don't have a mom, and many of them are looking just for someone to be a, an authority, dad-like figure for, for them, which is exactly what Molly is, and say yes. And he'll just do it time and time again, go out in the streets and just, uh, and just ba- basically beckon uh, these kids to, uh, to, be, to, to, be, to say, I'll take care of you. And who, who, I'm sure that he's been turned down before. The movie doesn't show that, but I'm sure there's a lot of kids that have said, sure, please, I'll do anything, you know, food, clothing. Yes, I don't have anything here. Take me home. And, uh, and he's really been a blessing. Hmm. Bob Walachewski here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website, focusonthefamily.com. Well, The Intersection podcast continues now. Jamel McGee was an aspiring businessman who was falsely accused and arrested and imprisoned for drug possession. Andrew Collins was the police officer who framed him for that crime. He later went to prison as well. Together, they discussed with me how God worked in their lives and brought them together 
They've written this book, Convicted, A Crooked Cop, An Innocent Man, and An Unlikely Journey of Forgiveness and Friendship. Here now are Jamel McGee and Andrew Collins. I started working for a nonprofit named Mosaic CCDA. Uh, this was about four years after the meeting in the park. And uh, uh, I was working as a cafe manager, and it had a, a component to it that was job skills training called Jobs for Life. And Jamel was part of that program, had no clue that I was in the cafe, and I was in the cafe and had no clue he was part of that program. And one day, uh, Miss Princella, who ran the Jobs for Life program, says to me, hey, there's this guy in my class. I think you should mentor him. I think God has laid it on my heart that you need to be his mentor. His name's Zuki. And I said, uh, I don't think I know Zuki, so you'll have to ask him if he wants to, to do this uh, mentor-mentee thing. So then she goes across the street and has this conversation with Mel. He said, hey, Jamel, I finally, I finally got your mentor. Uh, we understand that he may have done some things in the city of Ben Harbor, um, but we can change him at any given time you want. And I was like, wait a minute, Miss D. Hold on, who is it? And she was like, Andrew Collins. And I was like, no way. That is not going to happen. <laughs> and um, she started to walk away. So now, okay, we'll get to somebody else. And she started to walk away. And I stopped her. And I said, hold on, Miss D. Um, give me a second. Let me pray on that. And I prayed, and uh, when I woke up, my decision had changed. Um, I allowed uh, God to to guide those steps, and God was clearly telling me this is what He wants. This is what He wants to do um, is for us to to get together and, and move forward. Jamel, what would you want people to take away from this book, Convicted? Man, that it's possible to change. It's possible. <laughs> um, to do something different, and, and doing something different, you get a different result. Love, love is going to change things. And I, I will ask I will also want them to take away from this book, uh, for the people that don't understand the book or won't get the book. That my auntie said in a message a, a couple days ago, "What if God didn't forgive us?" What if he was unforgiving? That, man, weighs so heavy on me. Because for a lot of things, man, this, man, it's just amazing to, oh, man, God is truly, he's, man, he's orchestrating these things so that we can come out of our old ways, so we can get out of our old cycle, mm. to know that there's something better, um, in life, man, and, and if we come together and as, as one and get to know the people that we don't know, we can get a better understanding of who they are, and they'll get a better understanding of who we are. That's the, and then we can move forward and teach other people how to do the same thing. I think that's why God has chosen me and Andrew to, to walk forth into this platform, because it is definitely necessary, it is definitely needed, and we need to show the people our people, that this is possible, that this is what needs to be happening for us to be that great country that everybody wants. Like, we need to come together and, and get rid of our, our stigmas of each other and just get to know each other for real. Forget, for, forget about what you, what you heard about this person or, or the perception of those type of people Let's change all that and come together and get to know for itself, for yourself, 
for you to get a better understanding of who I am or who Andrew is or who anybody, you know, who the officer is. Like, we, we need to come together and get a better understanding of each other. Mm-hmm. And once we got that understanding, man, we can move to unreachable heights. From my side of it, um, I was the offender, you know? And there's a lot of people out there who are going to hear this message and they know they've hurt somebody and it's going to bring right to the forefront of their imagination, that person that they've harmed. And I would just encourage that person to to say, I'm sorry, to let pride get out of the way, get out of the way of pride and to make the apology that needs to happen. My part was to simply say, I'm sorry. Look, is going to open up people's eyes to, uh, just like Jamal said, if, if, if God forgave us and reconciled us to him through his son, who are we to live unreconciled with others? Jamal McGee and Andrew Collins here on The Intersection. Learn more about the book through the website convictedbook.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info. At that homepage, you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you could listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection podcast. Also, through that website, you can subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House radio program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, author, blogger, wife, and mother to 10 kids, September McCarthy, founder of the ministry Raising Generations Today, shared about some of her own motherhood experiences and offered encouragement for moms based on her book, Why Motherhood Matters, An Invitation to Purposeful Parenting. From a recent conversation, this is September McCarthy. I've discovered two things. I think, one, women um, become so consumed with motherhood that they forget who they are. They forget who God created them to be. They, And two, when they are desperate and lonely, they're waving their white flag, but no one's really seeing because we, we're not really sure what to look for. We think they're happy from the outside. And so what women do is they kind of isolate themselves, or I say like hibernate, and no one knows that they really um, need someone else to just come alongside and give them some hope and encouragement and say, you know, I'm here. And I think another really big part of it is no one wants to see our, no one wants anyone to see our mess, you know, the truth, like we're struggling, like just give us a hand. And so we hide it. And that's really where the loneliness comes from. And so I, I champion women to let people know you need help, you know, wave your white flag, let people in. And I talk about that in the book, Why Motherhood Matters, um, how hard it is to be honest and to let people into our our circles and into our close areas and those truthful spots. But that's really what makes a difference. And people can't help us if we don't do that. Well, the book has as its subtitle, An Invitation to Purposeful Parenting. I understood, or I understand that there was a point in your life that you really felt like that you needed to repurpose your life. What did you see that you needed to do and how did you accomplish that? I realized that I was spinning my wheels and I was just um, doing everything and for everyone and not for the right reasons. And I became very overwhelmed. 
and I was ready to walk away from it all. And I became very sick because of it and worn out. And I think women, to fill that space of loneliness, sometimes will um, do anything for anyone. And it's it becomes very overwhelming. Motherhood is overwhelming. And so I, ne- I realized that I needed to uh, repurpose everything. And so I stepped, I stepped away um, from everything that I was called, you know, saying yes to. And I decided to start making my yeses very specific and saying no to the things that were overwhelming me. And so um, I just started to ask myself some questions and um, to really pinpoint what was important in my motherhood and and to my life. And so um, I think, Matt, I think I know that women want to be appreciated, but I think in motherhood, we have to realize that motherhood isn't uh, about us. It's about, you know, our our relationship with our children, but about what we're going to do with our children for the Lord. And so um, I think sometimes repurposing our vision and creating a vision that's eternal with an eternal perspective for everything we do. And it sounds, it sounds so vague, but in the book, I go through these steps on how to pull back and examine um, why we do what we do with our children and why we do what we do with our commitments. And, um, and it really helps us define every moment, every moment of motherhood, every moment of womanhood. There's something that you deal with in the book, and that is something called mom guilt, or perhaps also known as mommy guilt. What is it? How does it operate? And how did you really see that it was something that was affecting you? I think mom guilt is a huge thing because what happens is we take on the load of the world for our children. And I think sometimes we become overwhelmed with our motherhood because we're trying to be the answer to every um, part of our child's life. We find ourselves on a perpetual roller coaster of apologizing or not able to meet their expectations. You know, we work hard, we help our kids, we feel like we're not doing enough or doing it perfectly. And then we apologize on repeat. And I have learned that what our children really need is for us to get out of the way um, of trying to fix things for them and let God be that for them. And um, it's hard for me to say that because I don't want to be preachy. And But I think for every part of our child's life that we try to own and fix for them, that we are taking away something from the work and worth of God in their lives. So I tell moms, get rid of the guilt and get rid of the guilt over not being enough because if we try to be everything to our children, then how will our children ever know who God is and what he can do for them and how he can help them? Um, so I tell moms to uh, to stop trying to keep up with a mom next door, that we are not the mom next door, hmm. and to um, maybe rest a little. September McCarthy here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website, SeptemberMcCarthy.com. The Intersection continues now with Jeremy Dice, Deputy General Counsel for First Liberty Institute and host of the First Liberty Briefing. In our recent conversation, he discussed the most recent report from First Liberty called Undeniable. It highlights numerous instances of religious hostility in the U.S. Here now from that conversation is Jeremy Dice. Undeniable is our annual study that we put out here. We got to go way back into the early 2000s when when Senator Kennedy and a number of others kind of challenged us to 
to show us some instances of religious hostility in America. And that, that led us to, to studying the issue carefully. And by 2012, we started publishing what we had begun to catalog, which were specific instances of religious hostility in America. And, and what we wanted to do is to provide a resource to, to lawmakers, to, to uh, journalists, and just to the average everyday American here, so that they know what the threats are to religious liberty. And what has happened now since 2012 is we've seen a 133% increase in the instances of religious hostility in America. That's just up over 15% just over the last year. And so it's rather obvious to us that uh, this publication, which we've given to President Trump, we've given to Vice President Pence, and we've given to all the members of Congress as well, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, our country has religious liberty under its threat. Wow. So is this a cumulative effect here since 2012 when you released the first edition, or do you you basically reset everything annually? Well, we update it every single year and go back over the periods of years to make sure everything is, is accurate and up-to-date, because what happens, as you can understand, is that uh, court cases don't just happen in one year oftentimes. Yeah. They, they sometimes will take, oh, you know, four, five, even six years to materialize from, from beginning to end. And so we want to make sure that the citations are accurate and that the uh, the website links still work that we put in there. Because when mom and dad grab the book and, and uh, want to show it to their kids or, or students in high school want to take it in for their civics class and review it with their classmates, they've got up-to-date information right at their fingertips to be able to show to everybody here that uh, that, that there's a real genuine threat to religious liberty and, and what you and I can do about it. These workplace situations seem to become more and more prevalent, it seems. You're, you're right. And, and don't forget about the story of Dr. Eric Walsh, who was a director of public health hired by the state of Georgia to run its northwestern chapter of of, uh, of, of the Department of Public Health in the state of Georgia. He's also a lay minister in the Seventh-day Adventist tradition. Uh, and when he was hired, they discovered that he was a pastor, asked him for copies of his sermons, didn't wait for him to provide those sermons, but went on YouTube and found them and divided them up amongst themselves. And after they watched them, for whatever they saw in those videos, he's preached on everything from Genesis to Revelation to how to care for the sick, the needy, and the poor— uh, but whatever it was that they found objectionable, they decided that they, they could not have him working there, so they fired Dr. Walsh. Uh, we were able to resolve that case, thankfully, after a little while, uh, to the tune of about $250,000. It was just under $250,000 that we settled that case for uh, to, to preserve Dr. Walsh's religious liberty. Well, and there's another category, and that has to do with schools and the freedom of students to express themselves, as well as school employees. Of course, there's the situation out of Bremerton, Washington. You guys have been involved in the case of Coach Kennedy there, who would just innocently walk to the 50-yard line after games and say a prayer. He has been dismissed from his job, and unfortunately there was a a negative ruling from the Ninth Circuit. But talk about that. I think that's indicative about some of the the misunderstanding of the First Amendment rights of people involved in our schools these days. Yeah, this is a remarkably unfortunate case. Let me be very clear of what what, uh, Coach Kennedy was fired for. Coach Kennedy was a football coach, and after the game was over and the kids were running to the the clubhouse or to to go to the showers, he would go to the 50-yard line take a knee, and for 15, maybe 30 seconds, he would utter a silent prayer. That's what he was fired for. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, a three-judge panel, found that that was, that, that was a bridge too far and that uh, Coach Kennedy uh, could be fired or should be fired for, for daring to take 15 seconds in silent prayer. Now, now, 
I want your listeners to understand the ramifications of that. Because if, if Coach Kennedy can be fired for a 15-second silent prayer uttered on the knee, then what about the, the Jewish coach on the sidelines? If he wears his yarmulke on the sidelines, he should be fired as well because the court said that if, if the fans and the students can see that outward display of religion, it's too much and it violates the Constitution. But I want you to understand that that is not correct. We believe the First Amendment provides that students and teachers, like the, the Supreme Court said back in the 1960s, neither students nor teachers shed their constitutional rights when they walked through the schoolhouse gates. Jeremy Dice here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website firstliberty.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Wesley J. Smith, Senior Fellow at Discovery Institute Center for Human Exceptionalism and member of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network Board of Directors. In our conversation, he discussed matters surrounding the end of life and the sanctity of life, including the case of Jahai McMath, declared to be legally dead in California, but not in New Jersey, where she is residing now. He wrote about the case on the First Things website, and his writings are regularly found on the National Review site. From that conversation, here is Wesley J. Smith. Three doctors ran all the tests, and at the time, back in 2013, uh, they declared that Jahai McMath had no brain function. She was had total brain failure. In other words, her brain was not working in its whole or in any and each of its constituent parts. Uh, that's what brain death is, and it's one, one of two means of declaring death. Uh, and, of course, this is supposed to be irreversible. Naila, the mother, uh, did not accept that, fought very hard against it, but lost the case in court because of these, what these three doctors determined. Oakland Children's Hospital is a very well-respected institution. This is not a case of let's give Jahai the bum's rush, in my opinion. But she took uh, Jahai to New Jersey, still hooked up to the medical machinery, thanks to a, a settlement that the judge was able to arrange. And in, in New Jersey, Jahai is not dead. New Jersey accepts brain death as dead, but there is a religious exemption in that state under the law. So uh, Nyla brought Jahai to New Jersey, and it's interesting because the doctors testified that she could almost certainly be expected to deteriorate very quickly because people with brain death, their bodies begin to break down, that you begin to have a, a putrefaction that goes on because the system ceases to work even with the medical machinery. Four years later, that has not happened with Jahai. Uh, in fact, uh, she's actually even got, had some menstrual cycles, uh, which w would be unexpected. I visited with Jahai, Bobby Schindler, Terry Schiavo's brother and I, a few weeks ago, and what I found was, was very fascinating. Uh, Jahai has no breakdown in her skin. There are no foul smells in her room. She's in a two-bedroom apartment with her mother, uh, receiving, of course, continual medical care. Uh, and, and it struck me, and, and I'm someone who actually wrote at the time in this tragedy, and it is a tragedy because this was a terrible uh, consequence of surgery where there was a terrible bleeding event post-surgery. Uh, uh, at the time, I said I believed that Jahai was dead because of what the doctors had said. Four years later, I, I don't think we should accept the 2013 determination that there really does need to be a reexamination of this case. Because as I wrote in my piece, Justice for Jahai, and people can find it by typing that in with my name, Wesley J. Smith, it's on First Things. 
uh, there are videos that have been taken that would appear to show Jahai responding to her mother's request to move particular body parts. There's been a declaration by a very well-respected doctor named Alan Schumann, who's a pediatric neurologist and emeritus now at UCLA, who has testified and, and under penalty of perjury that Jahai does not, at least now, meet the criteria for brain death either in California or through the you know the normal uh, standards uh, that are published. And it seems to me that if that's true, there needs to be an extended re-examination of this case, that doctors, the best doctors we have, and scientists need to come and take a look at Jahai over an extended period of time, not just for an hour or two uh, as a quick runoff, but over an extended period of time with every test we can and, and videos and so forth. Because if Jahai is not brain dead, something extraordinary may have occurred. There is never a time in history that we're aware of in which somebody who was declared irreversibly brain dead and the diagnosis was accurate where that function was restored. And if that happened in this case, if, remember I'm saying if, if the original determination was true and all of those tests were right, that Jahai had lost all brain function, and if, again if, today she actually has some brain function, well, either the original diagnosis of three doctors was wrong or something new has happened. And science requires us to find out Justice for Jahai requires us to find out. The integrity of the system requires us to find out. And so this really is a remarkable case, and I'm, I'm a bit stunned and appalled that there hasn't been action by the bioethics community and the medical communities to say, hey, we need to take a look at this more closely. Naila has won the right in California to try to prove that Jahai is alive. That means the burden of proof is on her in a medical malpractice case. But that's not sufficient. There's more here than the lawsuit. What re science, it seems to me, requires that this be given a very high visibility and that the best minds and, and doctors that we have be brought to bear to see what, if anything, has happened in this case. Wesley J. Smith here on The Intersection. You can find him at nationalreview.com or go to the Discovery Institute website at discovery.org. Well, that just about wraps up this edition of the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also subscribe to the Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.